some people think little girls should be seen and not heard. One, two, three, four! People do feel very radically different about gender experience. I mean, that's just like the rules of feminism. That diversity is like the number one thing I think that has to be reckoned with. Agenda with women in the arts. Good morning. You're listening to Agenda on FBI Radio, your Saturday morning fix of art, politics, news and trash from a feminist perspective. My name is Katie Winton. And I'm Tanya Ali. Agenda on FBI Radio is broadcast on Gadigal land and I would like to acknowledge the Gadigal people as the original custodians of the land we broadcast on and pay my respects to their elders past and present. I also acknowledge the significance of Redfern as a place of strength, resistance, knowledge sharing and storytelling for many communities and would like to honour that history. I caught up with Amy Middleton this week, who is the founder and editor of Archer Magazine, a print publication about sex, gender and identity. Amy was here from Melbourne for a few days, so I was lucky enough to catch her yesterday and we chatted about Archer as kind of an extension of one of her limbs, um, it being a really kind of, I guess, integral part of her life and her identity, uh, and also some fun strategies she uses to combat the sometimes isolating feeling of working from your bedroom in your track pants uh, (laughs) when you work on independent publications. Um, So definitely stay tuned for that chat in about 15 minutes. We're also talking to Justin Wolfers and Lauren Carroll Harris for the latest issue of The Lifted Brow, a not-for-profit literary publishing organisation also based in Melbourne. Justin is a writer, researcher and editor and he used to host FBI's own book club, which is really cool. He's a co-editor of The Lifted Brow and a book editor at Brow Books. Lauren is a writer, researcher and artist who writes a lot about cinema and art for Guardian Australia, Kill Your Darlings, ABC Radio, ABC TV and The Monthly Online, among others. I'm super into the way that The Lifted Brow describes themselves as seeking meaning, not money. (laughs) Yeah, I also spoke to Amy about this, about ethical journalism uh, and representation versus, you know, like fast news cycles and staying relevant. And I think that combination of reporting in that way is something that both Archer and Lifted Brow do really, really well. And I've also chatted to Lauren Carroll Harris before about gender representation in cinema. And so I'm really excited to hear from her a little bit later on in the show today about her new essay that's in the latest issue of The Lifted Brow. And it's called A Basically Marxist Analysis of the Rise of Activewear. (laughs) Very excited to get into that. (laughs) Such a tongue twister. (laughs) It's a great issue of The Lifted Brow. There's also an essay essay by Gusha Magazine's Isabella Trimboli called Listen Up, Reshaping the Cultural History of Punk Music. So I'm looking forward to talking to Justin about that. Uh, speaking of cultural history, Tanya, I think we need <laughs> to talk about the Solange review that you wrote. Oh, that's very, very kind <laughs> of you. And I'm so glad that we can now talk about Solange because we both had the great honour of seeing her last weekend, Katie. I caught her Friday show, as I mentioned on the show last week, and you saw her on Sunday, right? Yeah, I saw her on Sunday night which was kind of a good time to... Well, I thought it was a good time to see it because it, I guess it was in the middle as well. So it, she'd warmed up for a few days. She, it wasn't quite the finale. It was like I really enjoyed seeing or hearing about the different iterations of... Like I think between your the one that you went to see and the one that I saw, there were mm-hmm. a few things that were just a little bit different yeah, about totally. the shows, which I think is really cool as well because I thought that it was like such a complete performance, but it also didn't feel stagnant at all like she had yeah she's just a performer she's, she's an amazing so performer. good she's so good <laughs> at performing um so i wrote a review about the show you can find it at fbiradio.com it was a really difficult review to write um because 
I basically had no words and just all feelings after the show. Um, and it was one of those things where it felt like maybe putting the experience into words might be reductive and I just wanted to do it justice. But it kind of all fell into place when I was writing it and I was so glad to be able to, in a small way, capture what was such an immense cultural moment. Uh, yeah, I saw a few. I think maybe Lucy Smith, who used to host um, Mornings, yes. put up an image that said, like, I think I just witnessed, like... A really history. historical moment. Yeah, yeah history being made. Totally yeah. felt like that. 100%. Um, and I think, yeah, talking about some of the differences between that the times that we saw her, I think she must have only mentioned her battle with her health on the first night that you were there because she didn't say it when I went to see her. But from what I've heard, she brought up that she didn't know if she would ever be able to play shows again. Yeah, so she said um, at the show that I was at that in October last year, she had no idea if she'd ever be back on stage and that her Sydney shows were actually her first shows since, which was such a shock for me and it like you could not tell either if she hadn't said it no one would know that she hadn't been performing for eight months or so yeah um but she actually revealed via instagram in december last year that she was diagnosed with autonomic disorder she didn't share what type of autonomic disorder she was diagnosed with but people with autonomic disorders have trouble regulating heart rate blood pressure digestion and body temperature as the disorder is a dysfunction in the nervous system so for her to go from not knowing whether her health would enable her to play another show ever again to the incredible performance art that she blessed us with last weekend is a pretty huge deal. A huge deal and such a vulnerable thing to talk to such a big audience about. Mm. And I, I really just love and appreciate the way that she brought it up. So I kind of felt like she was reminding people that shows of that scale and having a career that big really isn't easy. It's stressful. She goes through heartbreak. She has health problems. Sometimes it takes a giant toll on your like physical and mental health. And uh, I can clarify as someone who has learned an entire dance routine to a Madonna track for a whole of five minutes um, <laughs> that Solange dancing for a good hour like she did would have been very exhausting. So exhausting. <laughs> she was on fire as were you during that Madonna routine, Katie. Thank you. Um, I remember that Solange actually said on stage that while she's a very private person and doesn't really want people knowing her business at the same time she thinks it's really important to be open and honest with her fans and the public. Uh, she was talking about when she was younger um, she looked up to artists thinking that they were totally perfect and put together and she wishes that they had showed their more human sides which is why she tries to do exactly that which I reckon is so lovely because I think it sounds like it's a form of sacrifice for her to be so forthcoming especially being from a family that is very much in the limelight. Oh, totally. Let's um, hear from Solange on how she turned her trauma, rage and anger into art following her diagnosis last year. This past year has been one of the most rewarding and wonderful moments of my life. I was able to turn my pain and my trauma and my rage into work and into my art. And I have been filled with gratitude so abundant that I can't even express it in words, how thankful I am. Um, I'm internally grateful and I will never, ever take for granted for the way that people have uplifted me and for my voice and my work. Oh, she's so graceful <laughs> and wonderful and humble. I feel so lucky that she made her way all over here and performed so incredibly. Um, I mean, yeah, we were just saying that it was a history-making performance and I heard so many people say that it was the best performance they've ever seen in Sydney, which is a huge call, but also not wrong. <laughs> um, and for anyone who has been listening to this conversation and didn't manage to get along last weekend, I am so sorry because I went on the first night and I was still getting, like, 
unreasonably jealous of everyone's Instagram stories at her other three shows. I can't imagine how you feel, but I'm sure she will come back soon. Don't worry. Uh, We're going to hear from Amy Middleton, the editor and founder of Archer Magazine, on ethical journalism, burnout, and the restorative power of Britney Spears (laughs) right after this track from Sydney Duo Din, which is uh, made up of Rainbow Chan and Alex Ward. I just can't stop listening to this one. It's called Mere Talk. You're listening to Agenda on FBI Radio.
Thoughts that count. Agenda on FBI Radio. You're listening to Agenda on FBI Radio and for Thoughts That Count this week, we're asking you what magazines or publications do you love or have been really influential to your life? Please text us on 0409 945 945. Katie, you're a pretty big fan of Archer magazine, so you caught up with Amy Middleton yesterday to chat about ethical journalism and creative burnout and you also asked her what publications have influenced her. Let's take a listen to that now. Hi, Amy. Hello, Katie. (laughs) Thanks Thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for having me. Can you tell me about how Archer magazine began and what your role at Archer is? Sure. So um, it's funny calling it a role actually because it sort of, I uh, launched it myself and if I wasn't there it probably wouldn't exist. So any role is something that I actually give myself, which is awkward and strange. Um, So I launched Archer back in 2013. Um, The main impetus behind it was that I was looking for the next sort of step in my journalism career and uh, I was working at a caravan magazine at the time and was looking for a publication that dealt with things I was more interested in and at the time and still um, my favourite topics are sort of around sexuality and gender and identity Um, but I couldn't find a publication that dealt with these issues from an inclusive perspective so there were lots of gay mags a couple of lesbian mags lots of straight mags and nothing that was sort of addressing identities that I could relate to Um, so being a 25 year old um somewhat arrogant journalist I was like I can make this (laughs) so I went for it um harder than I thought turns out (laughs) a little bit um but I'm glad that I didn't know everything I know now because I possibly wouldn't have done it um so yeah the first few years were pretty tough um but we're in a good place now I've got a really good solid team of um, volunteers around me and um I've managed to even step off for a few months of maternity leave this year which is incredible And I'm really interested in the uh, twice yearly format because I feel like that may offer you the ability to kind of cover stories that are outside of this responsive journalism model. I mean, I guess that's something that I'm really interested in terms of agenda covering ideas around feminism and gender and sexuality quite constantly is this um, kind of way that you can speak to people that doesn't maybe feel like it is trying to draw a story out of them but mm. rather you're representing them in a way that feels genuine and comfortable and like you say inclusive um do you think that the twice yearly model and that kind of more flexibility or time influences the way that you represent um people that are in archer yeah definitely and we like i'm 100 percent with you we have at the forefront of our kind of mission statement is representing people in the way they choose to be represented um, so we have this really comprehensive back and forth with writers where we run all our edits by them before we go to print, um, which takes ages, but I think it's responsible journalism um, and we sort of hope that we set an example for other print media in that way. Um, we I did sort of initially view it as something a little bit more news-based, um, but as you've just pointed out, it's sort of like giving people distance from a topic to reflect on it and be able to find themselves in a topic um, I think makes for much more human focused and therefore in my opinion interesting journalism Um, we do publish stories every week on the website 
but that turns into a sort of experimental ground for um, the print edition. So occasionally we'll take a smaller story from the website and really flesh it out in print. Um, so it's, it's sort of become an anthology in a way. Yeah, I guess it's a tricky combination, isn't it, between uh, staying relevant and staying up to date with your audience, but um, making sure that you represent people in a way that doesn't maybe feel like it's that kind of immediate coverage that doesn't allow that time and space to really think about what you're covering. And I guess this kind of feeds into the creative burnout article that was published by <laughs> Madeleine Dorr on Extraordinary Routines. And it really resonated with me. Um, is it weird to quote you? Can I quote you? Oh, please. <laughs> I feel so special okay, and important. Great. So um, you wrote, I mean, the work is hard, sure, but it's the emotional side of things I really struggle with. Uh, crucially, as a magazine about sexuality and gender, Archer Magazine is unique in the personal nature of the stories and images we publish. So between running a business on next to no wage, there's the added pressure of ensuring everyone is represented in ways that suit them and doing our best to contribute something to the world that's going to have a positive impact. I said that? Yeah. Congratulations. (laughs) Thanks. Very um, influential for me. And I guess I was wondering how you go about ensuring that everyone is represented in a way that suits them. Is it a lot of conversation before you do interviews or like what is that kind of, or more of a conversation with your sub-editors? What does that kind of process look like? Yeah, it's really developed over the years. I've kind of found the things I struggle with have really come into view for me during this process of running this magazine. And I think my empathy and compassion levels have had to be dialed down in order to get any work done. So, like, I've found I needed to put boundaries in place in terms of how much space I offer people to control the way that they're represented. And the way that we've kind of tackled that is through process documents. So now, instead of me just going on my gut, which I did for a long time and it was great, but it really was at the cost of my well-being, um, now we have a very clear process whereby we have check-ins at certain times in the editorial process and the same goes for events. So if we've got writers reading their pieces at a launch, for instance, we have a check-in beforehand, we make sure and discuss any possible triggers that they might have, um, we make sure there's an archer volunteer on hand to help out if anything should go awry and then afterwards we have a check-in So and then we cap it at that because I was kind of spending my whole time I'm doing this sort of mentoring, empathic, checking in process and it was getting in the way of my life. I am really passionate about it, but I've kind of found that a more formalised approach is more efficient. Um, And I've recently brought on a new editor for the magazine for the first time. So my role has become a lot more behind the scenes, running the back end of the business and seeing the processes that he, Adolfo Aranjua is, who I think you're going to chat to. Yes. The processes that he has in place, which are more formalised and a little bit more strict. um, I think we've made a really good team in that way. Congratulations. Thank you. (laughs) Um, I'm really excited about the new issue of Archer that Adolfo's edited. Can you tell me about what the issue is about? Yeah, so this one's the history issue. We've um, We've been choosing topics for issues since number three, I think, and history felt really appropriate because it's issue number 10 and it's the first issue that I haven't edited. Uh, And also there's this sort of increasing awareness in the queer community particularly about this intergenerational sort of respect and interaction. And I think this idea of elders and how to kind of join the conversation between the millennial queers who are so loud (laughs) (laughs) and the queer elders. And it's kind of funny that I use the term queer elders because many of the elders don't like the word queer. And that in itself is a really interesting 
talking point. So I've sort of been in conversation with people of a different generation or even some people from our generation who are like not okay with the reclaiming of the term queer and it's still triggering for them or it bothers them and I think that's something very much worth talking about. Yeah I mean I think it's definitely something worth talking about too and it's I'm really interested to uh, read some of those perspectives in the new issue um what kind of articles are in are in there so we've got an article by um, peter waples crow who's an indigenous queer elder um we've got some articles on butch identities and um living with hiv which have a sort of retrospective feel to them also an article on trans erasure in archives which is like looking at history from the present tense and the future, Um, so how to do history better, if you know what I mean. Um, And I think there's so much attention paid to archiving information at the moment because of the internet and the high volume of communication that we're all consuming. So I feel like Archer tries to get archiving right, which is Mm. such a strange thing. It's a really strange perspective to look at. Yeah, it's such an interesting time at the moment with even how to archive things on the internet. Yeah, very much. And whether that will exist and what print to um, online kind of content loses and what it gains. There's so many conversations to be had around that, I think. Yeah, and that was a really big reason why we launched Archer as a print product. Um, It's really cost prohibitive. (laughs) Like, it doesn't make sense um, from a business perspective. But uh, I don't think you can capture a moment in time digitally because the ads will change and the format will change and screens will change and it never quite looks the way it did at the time. Yeah, and I also kind of just don't trust the internet. Like, what if the <laughs> yeah. what if the browser crashes and it's not there anymore? You know, yeah, like yeah. It, or it gets changed. Yeah, like, Wikipedia yeah. gets changed every day. So, whereas Archer, the print product, is a relic and it stays mm. the way. And, you know, we look back on issue one now and even the discussions we were having about things like gender identity have shifted and it looks dated, which is perfect. It means that we can see where we've come in such a short time. Well, it's kind of also contained in a document that you can reference and bring up and have as something to physically look through. And yeah, I I think there's so much in being able to look at something and compare it in in real time or I guess in a kind of uh, physical format to what something is today. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Something that we're talking to a few people about on the show today uh, is about what kind of influential publications have shaped the way that they read magazines or um, I guess consume magazine content. I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on publications that have been influential for you. Yeah, so um, from one aspect there's the kind of career lens that I could place on that question, which is that my first job out of uni was at the Bulletin magazine, which was a news and current affairs print product. And it was this enormous team of really passionate journalists. It was very much like uh, the old guard. I'm sure I'm offending people by saying that, but um, I was fresh out of uni and just wide-eyed and taking in all I could and just watching the kind of demise of print journalism from that moment on so that magazine got axed six months after I joined and that it was just everything just tumbled around me um so I quickly learned digital editing skills so as to keep a job and it's been really interesting watching out of the ashes of that kind of um disintegration of the older print products this new generation of indie print magazines so there's definitely still an appetite for print but now it's kind of in this more adaptive dynamic and independent kind of model which is 
so exciting and so cool. Um, and we managed to make Archer work. We even pay people a little bit. It's the dream. <laughs> yeah, not much. <laughs> but some. Uh, and we get, you know, funded by the Victorian state government every year to do what we do. Um, so there are ways to create an independent print model and I'm so passionate in about finding those and sharing them so that kind of lesser heard voices can publish themselves and each other more easily and readily. Which I can imagine would be tough a lot of the time, uh, like just with the process of independent printmaking and publishing. You mentioned before that often it's you by yourself at your house trying to, you know, smash out things on your laptop and you kind of, sometimes it can be, I guess, or I'd imagine it can be quite isolating. Um, and you mentioned before a little strategy that you have uh, with some music. Can you can you can you tell me about it? My sad I just thought story. It was really nice. It's cute. Yeah, <laughs> I was just talking about the fact the the isolating factor and how I used to. Well, it's pretty much always just me working by myself on Archer. Although I have an amazing team of twelve, we all work on Archer between paid jobs, so it's very rare that we're in the same room together. So. I sit on my own on my laptop, either in my house or in my office um, or various awkward places where I've managed to rent a desk um, for not much money. Or you're like trying to extend your one coffee for as many hours as you can. Yeah, I'm like, a juice? (laughs) Can I have that? Uh, Maybe just a sparkling water? Yeah. (laughs) Um, So every time I sell an ad, which is kind of a very key part of our revenue, um, I play a particular song, um, something that gets me really happy so that I can like attach the dopamine and the celebration to this sound. <laughs> so I, love that so um, I changed the, the song each issue. So at one point it was Britney Spears' Work Bitch, which like <laughs> really got me G'd up. And I'd be like, I did it. And I'm just sitting alone in this office by myself listening to Britney. I was so sad. <laughs> and at one stage it was... Um, it was Enya, Sail Away, which is just such a great party tune. So good. I've rediscovered it and it's just yeah. everything. Enya is everything, I yeah, think. Yeah, <laughs> so uplifting. Yeah. Yeah, so that's my guilty um, secret. Um, I think you're talking to Lifted Brow yeah, people we're talking this week. Yeah, to um, Justin Woofers and Lauren Carroll Harris, who just has a new article or I guess essay in the recent edition of The Lifted Brow on Marxism and the rise of activewear. Oh, <laughs> so amazing. That'll be a really interesting conversation. I think you've just given us a great song to go out on. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm sorry, FBI, I'm going to request um, Brittany. Oh, uh, Brittany, you're not yeah, going in there? Well, I don't know. I feel like Enya's a bit more safe for... Um, uh, let's, yeah, let's push the <laughs> boundaries with morning. some Brittany. <laughs> Amy, thank you so much for coming in to talk to me today. Thanks, Katie. Everyone should go and uh, get themselves a copy of the latest edition of Archer. It's out now and you can order it on the website. Yeah, that's right, archermagazine.com.au. Perfect. Thanks so much. You wanna... You wanna... You wanna hot body? You wanna boot body? You wanna muzzle body? You better work, bitch. You wanna Lamborghini? Sip martinis? Look hot in a bikini? You better work, bitch. You wanna live fancy? Live in a big mansion? Party in France? You better work, bitch. You better work, bitch. You better work, bitch. You better work, bitch. Let's get to work, bitch. Let's get to work, bitch. Bring it on, bring it on. Don't stop now, just be the champ.
That was Britney Spears with Work Bitch, um, in case you couldn't tell. I'm sorry if your ears are bleeding a little on what you'd hoped would be a cruisy Saturday morning on Agenda on FBI Radio 94.5 uh, FM, but the editor of Archer magazine, Amy Middleton, mentioned that it gives her a lot of dopamine like when she's working solo on Archer, so it would have been pretty rude of us not to play it after Amy <laughs> gave up her morning yesterday to chat to me about her work. True. I think it's a great way to start your Saturday morning. <laughs> you are halfway through Thoughts That Count with myself, Tanya Ali and Katie Winton. Today we're asking you what magazines you find influence your life in a positive way, whether you see a story reflected back, you find out about arts and culture, or you just appreciate a good dose of trash. Please text us on 0409-945-945. Uh, we did receive a lovely text uh, from an anonymous texter in saying, I love UK biannual mag, the gentlewoman for its stylized writing, its focus on photography, and fabulous implicit feminism. It's about fab women of all ages doing fab things. Also love a local free craft beer mag called Froth. Great illustration and keeps indie beer lovers up to date with all things craft beer in Oz. 
Oh, what a well thought out text. Thank you, Anonymous. Uh, to be honest, I've only really been hugely influenced by magazines and publications as an adult. I think the magazines I read as a young teenager were probably more damaging than they were inspirational or helpful. Uh, cue me a Friedman years of Dolly. Definitely Ooh. had some questionable content. Yeah. <laughs> Interestingly, though, there was a study done by Dr. Amanda Wilson for Australian and New Zealand Journal of Public Health that found Australian readers should actually get help information from Dolly rather than other so-called health mags. Uh, The study of 163 articles published over six months in 2011 uh, gave props to Dolly Doctor for presenting information on everything from UTIs and STDs in an accessible, factual way that was overall preferable to other titles. They said this magazine, uh, Dolly, provided excellent examples of ethical ways to deliver health advice and also highlighted the need for this type of advice advice to be provided for this particular age group. Yeah, so Dolly Doctor was actually Associate Professor Melissa King. Kang, sorry, from the University of Technology, Sydney, and she's become a bit of a cultural icon, answering a lot of questions about sexuality, health and relationships in her 23 years at Dolly magazine. So over the years, I got questions to Dolly Doctor about a whole range of things. Probably the most common question was about tampons. These poor girls who couldn't get a tampon in or actually couldn't get it out again. And I think the common thread across all these questions was, am I normal? So teenagers were experiencing sensations, noticing changes in their bodies, um, getting involved in relationships and just really worrying if that was kind of normal or whether it was the same as everybody else. I mean, still probably don't get health advice from a pop culture magazine Uh, or maybe just like not your sole source of health advice, I would say. Um, But I think that's actually why I find Archer so excellent as well. Like the most recent recent issue features articles like Sex Work and Society by Kay Stavrou, Dominatrix History by Anne Onomis and Penetration Trauma by Greta Parry. And I think this quote in the latest issue from Kay Stavrou is pretty accurate in relation to the type of content and why it's not really covered anywhere else in such an honest way. So uh, they said questions would be asked with a glint in the eyes, brows furrowed with faux or real concern, assuring lips would say, I'm better than that, ears would prick for salacious stories. Um, And I know that Kay is specifically talking about sex work, but I think that kind of stigma that she's talking about is pretty hard to avoid in mainstream conversations about sex, especially when it intersects with less normative ways of thinking about sex, sexuality and gender. So I think when it's published somewhere, it's really great, like, because you can engage with that conversation without actually having to do the emotional labour of having that conversation with someone yourself or if you're the person doing the learning, you don't have to burden someone with asking a million questions of them, of their like identity or lived experience. Totally. It's so good. Yeah, I agree. Magazines are such a great and intimate medium that educate in a very accessible way. I reckon the first magazine I was super invested in, if we sweep Total Girl under the rug, <laughs> um, was one called Horsewise Magazine, which is possibly even dorkier to admit to than Total Girl. But, and I'm sure this is a tale that I'll elaborate on in a future Agenda episode, Horsewise actually led me to making some really great friends through the magazine's pen pal program. And one of my best friends to this day is an incredible human that I met through there. So shout out to Horsewise. I think um, Frankie Magazine is one that I always loved as a teen and still pick up now and then. There's always an interesting article or two in there and it's all very accessible as well. Weirdly enough, Frankie is where I actually learnt about the existence of Australian offshore detention centres through a really incredible article they ran in 2010 about Christmas Island. And I'm so excited that independent magazines like Archer and The Lifted Brow 
Uh, on the up and up, there are great online-only magazines on the rise as well, like Liminal Magazine, which publishes an in-depth profile on an Asian-Australian uh, every Monday. Folk Magazine is one that springs to mind too. It's been living online for a good while, but they just released their physical edition, their first one. So Folk Magazine is for and by artists of colour and is a really great one to support. You can find them at the Folk Mag on Instagram, and you can grab a copy of their first print issue online as well. Can confirm that Tanya is in fact a fan of Liminal because she's wearing a <laughs> Liminal t-shirt Don't right now. Don't expose me like this, Katie. God. No, I think it's a really uh, great fact for people to know about that you know what you're talking about. Um, if you've just tuned in, you're listening to Agenda on FBI Radio, and we're discussing which magazines have been influential for you. Please text us on 0409 945 945. Up next, we're going to hear from Lauren Carroll Harris and Justin Woofers about an essay that Lauren wrote for another excellent magazine called The Lifted Brow. The essay is called A Basically Marxist Analysis of the Rise of Activewear. So definitely stick around for that right after this brand new track from Sydney-based artist Exhibitionist. This one came out on her EP called Let Go of Love that she released yesterday. The track is called Blood. i 
You tuned in to Agenda on FBI Radio and we're joined in the studio by Justin Wolfers and Lauren Carroll-Harris now to talk about Australian quarterly print literary magazine The Lifted Brow and an essay by Lauren on Marxism and activewear. Justin, uh, can you give us an idea of the kinds of stories that are published by The Lifted Brow? Yeah, um, so Lifted Brow is a Melbourne-based magazine. It champions work from artistic and demographic margins. It's kind of the way we think of it. So work, for example, uh, active work isn't in the margins, but the, t- the, take, <laughs> the take that Lauren has is very much so. Uh, and, then, and then also work from a, ra- like a wide range of people of different backgrounds and interests. Um, in this issue, for example, there are, there's a very deep dive into fandom of Carly Rae Jepsen. Yes. There's also... Uh, you know, a diary from an eye doctor visiting detention centres. There's also an essay about someone doing copywriting for bees and there's fiction and poetry. So there's all sorts, really, and that's kind of what we pride ourselves on, yeah. Yeah, and there's an essay by Isabella Tromboli from Gusha. Yeah, it's fantastic, and it's kind of a feminist history of punk music, which is awesome, and there's also one about funding problems in film industry and a generation of women filmmakers who received all this funding that doesn't exist anymore. And we wonder why we talk about Jane Campion being amazing, but, you know, the funding doesn't continue for more people like that to be brought through from emerging to established. So much great content. We spoke earlier to Amy Middleton from Archer Magazine about the rise of independent publications and how they have more of an adaptive dynamic than traditional print. Can you tell us about the previous iterations of The Lifted Brow and maybe how it's evolved or what the different components of it are? Because I know there's the publishing and then the website and Brow Books. Yeah, so The Brow's been around for just over 10 years and it's had quite a few iterations. Um, It started in print in a sort of newspaper format with a small distribution and through a lot of volunteer hard work from people mostly including publisher Sam Cooney it sort of developed and had partnerships to the point where it's a pretty slick looking quarterly print object with original online content coming up every week, events, lectures, prizes and they've recently started doing books which sort of publish work that wouldn't find a publisher otherwise in Australia because they're topics and approaches that are a little bit too marginal for trade publishers to take. And yeah, that's been quite yeah effective, I guess, and worked surprisingly well and starting to make a little bit of revenue to ask to do more. So that's great. People are hungry for different ideas, aren't they? That's what the brow's kind of all about for me, I reckon. Yeah, it's Honestly, it's a little shocking to me. Uh, <laughs> like, I was having a conversation about fiction in Australia recently, short fiction in particular, and Pelly says you can publish weird short fiction, and it's very, very bare. And it was almost embarrassing to say, oh, no, I think it is, like, you should probably just submit it to the brow because, this, yeah, like, certain things are taken care of, but there are many that there's no space for because it's hard to keep those sort of things going. Lauren, you've written an essay for the most recent copy uh, titled A Basically Marxist Analysis of the Rise of Activewear. Where did this essay begin for you? Well, I did something pretty weird, which was I defected from the inner west to the eastern suburbs because I wanted, you know, just a life where I could see the horizon, for example, (laughs) and see I was, you know, I was missing trees. I just wanted more colour and nature. Yeah. And um, that's when it really hit me, this ubiquitous activewear thing. Um, And I could see that it really appealed to women who wanted, like, a response to how crappy the fashion industry has been to women for so many years. Like, you know, people who wanted comfy stuff to wear that still looked good. But 
I really started noticing, especially because I started going to yoga, because I didn't have many friends in the area, every second night, this kind of spiritual activewear, as my mum calls it as well. <laughs> and I was like, I think there's something else going on here than, you know, kind of comfortable sports clothing to wear during the day that's socially acceptable. I think there's something weird going on with the gender stuff around it. And I think there's a bit of a, a broom of a bullshit industry really (laughs) and then the more I looked into it yeah I found out that this activewear industry is being valued as being worth 83 billion dollars by the year 2020 and there's like cascades of niches within niches of marketing and business um research and industry kind of trend forecasting that's like okay what's the next big thing in activewear they're saying that the Chinese market is the next big thing in activewear they're saying that elderly activewear is the next big thing so the more I dug into it, the more I was like, there's some pretty weird cultural and economic vortex of decisions that are kind of made for us, compelling us to buy this stuff when we go to the shop, when we go to, you know, Cotton On or wherever we're going. What's the difference between activewear and sportswear? <laughs> <laughs> well, this is what I found, that activewear wasn't just about sportswear. It was definitely an aestheticization of sportswear, but it was a lifestyle choice. And that's kind of why um, people are into it and that's why marketers are into it. And the more that, you know, I worked with Justin, extremely angel editor, uh, we realised that there was something about the way that people were using activewear, women in particular, as distinct from sportswear, to brand themselves and to really internalise this corporate branding. You know, branding used to be thought of as something that multinational corporations do. Now we kind of all do it to an extent on our, you know, social media and stuff like that. So, yeah, that, that definition between sportswear and activewear is growing all the time, I would say, and certainly the, the literature suggests that as well. Totally. Uh, what does athleisure mean? It's just gross. You know? <laughs> it's just marketing bullshit that we've all internalised. And now it's in the dictionary. It's in the Merriam-Webster wow. dictionary. You know, it's something that Gwyneth Paltrow and Beyonce have really pushed. I'd say it's an expression of 21st century consumer feminism that the market has latched onto and created a marketing name for. Yeah, you talk about... <laughs> um, I was really interested in the way that you kind of set up the essay to talk about, uh, you know, people like Jane Fonda in the 80s, um, why she positioned her workout kind of tapes as a feminist project and maybe why that could be perceived as problematic. Yeah, I mean, I'm a mega Jane Fonda fan. Like, I'm into her. She's, She's a really strong, smart woman. And I found that she was one of the early kind of um, originators of, and and she foresaw this activewear trend. She said that, um, you know, in the 70s, after she had become known as um, G.I. Jane and after her career in Hollywood was in tatters after her anti-Vietnam War activism, she had to find a new way to to reinvent herself. And part of the way she did that was in L.A. setting up her workout studio and leading these workouts and trying to cure herself of bulimia. What she did was she made these videos of the workout of herself leading these kind of, what would you call it, this kind of mixture of dance and um, aerobics. And they're like incredible videos, like you should look them up on YouTube and they've just been converted back to DVD as well, like they're back on the market. And she invented um, the early VHS kind of industry as well because before everyone had video players in their houses, they were like, well, I'm not going to buy new hardware for movies that I only watch once but they play aerobics tapes by Jane Fonda every day so she 
she pushed this as a feminist project, but I think there's something about the conflation of looking sexy and looking fit. You know, fashion doesn't actually lead to more fitness, and we know that. It's like, look around. We're not really living in a more healthy society five to ten years after the activewear boom. (laughs) (laughs) Um, can you talk a little bit about the upside? In your essay, you describe oh, it man. as the most brazenly, cynically <laughs> evil of these various activewear brands. I'd love to hear you talk about it. Yeah, the the upside is like a distinctly eastern suburbs vision of the activewear plague. And it started by Jodie Mears. Um, and I think it... it uh, you know, it's extremely expensive. It's far beyond my <laughs> my budget. But I think what it says is it, it says something about how socially perfectionist we are and this kind of aspirational vision of um, needing to look put together at all times, um, projecting an image of success to the world, I would say, via what you wear. And I, I think there's real flaws with that because I don't think what we wear will ever really encapsulate who we are what we're about our identity or even what is success <laughs> yeah it's, it's the thing that I'm quite torn about because as someone yeah. who is like very into this trend of even gorpcore which is like a new trend of uh it references good old raisins and peanuts which is like a what? trail <laughs> trail mix but it's this kind of um like Patagonia trend of oh, like hiking wear yeah. that is really comfortable that yeah. has become fashionable I am a massive advocate for that because I feel like <laughs> finally I can wear things that are really comfortable yeah. and it's also maybe more socially acceptable. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I guess for me it is such an interesting uh, arc that you take readers through of setting it up to kind of talk about the constrictions of fashion in terms of mm. women's movement um, but then also bringing it back to uh, this conflation of active wear being a specifically marketable thing to women. Yeah. Um, and I'm wondering, as the million dollar question, do you <laughs> think that active wear itself is a feminist project? Oh, <laughs> no. I hope that my essay debunks that idea. Actually. I mean, it, it's kind of a rhetorical question, yeah, really. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's not at all a critique of um, people's personal um, preferences and their own aesthetic choices. I mean, I know that there are also ways in which I perform certain visions of you know, femininity and social perfectionism, because this is a society that you kind of need to be part of and fit into in ways that are often in contradiction with your own personal values. <laughs> so it's not so much a judgment about what women wear, but, you know, an industrial look at how the choices we make are often made for us before, before we buy stuff. Totally. Thank you guys so much for for coming in. To finish, a question for both of you. We've been speaking throughout the show about how magazines have kind of shaped us in different ways. And uh, we were wondering, are there any particular examples for both of you uh, of magazines that have had a strong influence, maybe as a teenager or even now? (laughs) (laughs) I never had subscriptions to like Girlfriend and Cosmo. I was like that aspiring kind of like oh, maybe one day I'll have a Frankie sub. But (laughs) now I've kind of jumped on the literary magazine and literary um, journal way of life. (laughs) (laughs) So the Lifted Brow, you know, because it it even looks at mainstream stuff like active wear from a weird sideways angle, you know, if far out, you know, if I could have have read that stuff as a teenager, Mm. I think I would have, you know, had an idea that you can 
be a writer who's not making kind of fiction or um, not yeah, and that you can connect with people who who share other strange ideas <laughs> with you. Yeah, I feel like I could I could answer that question in like twenty different ways yeah, depending on how I'm feeling at the moment. But yeah. uh, and I wasn't a big subscriber as a child either. Mm. Um, I definitely like had a New Yorker subscription and then the stack <laughs> went up and then you feel bad and then you stop yeah. subscribing. But I think what I would say is some places that have published really great conversations between artists, I think The mm. Believer, The Paris Review, The Baffler and, Baffler and oh. Bomb, those places for me somehow always cut through even something someone's written because it shows the artist in, in a thinking mode with someone else that always creates amazing ideas for me. So I'd say that that's something that's really strong for me mm. but also as Lauren said it's so great to see work that yeah you would have wanted to read as a teenager yourself it's a good barometer I was isn't talking it? to a writer who yeah. wrote a piece about feminism and surfing culture and, and objectification oh. and she's like I just want this in the surf shop in the town I grew up in People because when I was 15 yeah. that wasn't there and I think that's I don't know it's a nice thing to aspire to for sure Definitely. Justin Wolfers and Lauren Callow-Harris, thank you so much for coming in and chatting to us on Agenda. That's a lot. You've been tuned in to FBI Radio. Please stick around for Ted Dwyer on Weekend Lunch. This is Caitlin Aurelia-Smith with Yugoslavia. Thank you.